Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Companies Editor Ian Smith. How are you doing, Ian? Not too bad, John. How are you? I'm all right. And uh, Alex Newman. How are you doing, Alex? I'm okay. Good. And uh, Alex, you've written this week's cover feature. I have. The world's best minds. You wanted to call it Minecraft. Yes, but for legal reasons, we uh, erred on the side of caution. We erred on the side of caution, but however, we've ha- we have a Minecraft-themed cover. So Yes, and so, for, for listeners who are unaware of Minecraft and who aren't nine years old, we should point out this is a really popular uh, game with kids. Computer game, that is. I'm pretty sure it's popular with adults as well. Where you build things up rather than dig into the ground, is that correct? You can, no, you have to dig, you have to that dig, you have to, you have to gather... Uh, you have to gather resources and then deploy them to build a, like a, amazing magical castles and things like that. A perfect setting for this discussion. It sounds massively time-consuming, which is probably <laughs> why anyone with a job uh, has done well to avoid it. Um, okay, well, we'll talk about the cover feature in a minute. Um, it's uh, no, it's fascinating. It's a great feature in which we talk about some of the, the, the world's best minds, basically the uh, the, the really the, the most prospective minds that are out there and who owns them. Hmm. But let's start with news, Ian, because it has been an interesting week. I mean, it's not you know we're not we're not in kind of peak news season, but there's been some some good stuff going on. Yeah, uh, depending on your perspective. Yeah, it's, we haven't had good a de- stuff. Good yeah. stuff, bad stuff. Good stuff, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. There's, there's, there hasn't been a deluge of corporate stories yet. That is coming in the next few weeks with the corporate results season. But there's been some really interesting wider stories, one of which you picked up on in your editorial this week, the nuclear sector, which has really been a focus. Following the um, write-down, the $6.3 billion write-down um, put out by Toshiba, the Japanese conglomerate that produces everything from TVs to... Uh, Nuclear, nuclear uh, reactors. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, they've had problems with this Westinghouse uh, division, which is mainly US-based. They bought it actually from BNFL. British in, Nuclear Fuels. Exactly, in 2006, which is a UK government-owned mm-hmm. uh, body. Um, and really, I, th- I suppose the nuclear industry, the narrative of it hangs around the disaster in Fukushima in 2011. And after that, people started to become quite concerned or more concerned about whether what part nuclear would play in the energy future and the viability um, and the profitability of um, building nuclear power plants. Um, so people had thought for a while there might be um, reasons to worry about the value of this division. Then Toshiba had that big accountancy problems where they were overstating their profits over a number of years. And it all started to culminate last year where they did a write-down. It's further complicated by the fact that it involves Westinghouse's own purchase of Stone & Webster, which is a nuclear construction company uh, from CBNI, Chicago Bridge and Iron. Um, so problems to do with that acquisition and the value that that placed on the assets and the projects underway then led to a write-down last year. Towards the end of last year, a further promise of a bigger write-down and then this big number that we kind of saw in the news this week. So it's been building for a while. But, yeah, that doesn't understate uh, the impact that it's had on the share price, as you can see in the chart of the week this week. Mm. No, I mean, so, so this is a kind of a tangled web. Our readers don't necessarily, our listeners even, don't necessarily need to untangle because I, sus- I suspect there are not many of our readers who have shares in Toshiba. For the wider picture... But there's a bigger narrative... Here. Yeah, which is the viability of building nuclear power plants, where you'll get the funding to build uh, these, um, yeah, these plants, and the prices that you can get. And yeah, that's something you've picked up on. Yeah, I mean, so, so we had a new prime minister who took the reins earlier last year. In fact, time flies. 
And, and one of the first problems he had to deal with was the Hingley Point project, uh, the, the new reactor that has been on the drawing board for a long, long time down in Somerset. So that, there was discomfort there. There was massive discomfort there. You know, there, there, was, uh, there was the ability of EDF, who were the big partner on that project, to actually deliver it because they themselves have some financial troubles. And as I mentioned, there, there are... Certainly, you know, obviously there is political turmoil in France. I don't think that's uh, an overstatement of the situation we have in France uh, at the moment in terms of what is going to happen there with its new government and the elections coming up this year. And also the involvement of the Chinese, who are big funders of the Hinkley Point project, um, but on the basis that they are allowed to build their own reactor 10 miles from my house. Yeah, this feeds into wider questions, right, of... Um the economic or energy security of the country and that is that's where there was some concern about um foreign control of certain important um stations indeed indeed and there there, there were also concerns when the hinkley deal was eventually struck at the price that was being offered uh the price for the for the electricity that was going to be produced the price that was being offered to edf for that which seemed very high and actually since my editorial was written yesterday, um, there have been further developments on that front, which you, you mentioned to me earlier. Ian. Yeah, so the UK government said for future projects that um, the price promised by the people building the power stations in terms of the price of the electricity coming out of them um, would have to be 15 to 20% cheaper um, than um, what was agreed around Hinkley Point. I think it was an FT story um, on Wednesday. And, uh, yeah, that's just interesting because obviously we knew to sign that Hinkley deal, it was reported at the time that it was a very high price that they were baking into it, right? So it's not surprising mm. that they would be going for a kind of lower price in future projects. Um, but it does feed into this question that you raise, which is what kind of prices are you going to have to promise to get the necessary funding? And which um, countries, given the turmoil in certain markets, are you going to be able to find to, yeah, to, to fund these projects? So uh, something I was looking at earlier, there was an expert on the sector saying there was just three potential countries now that um, are seen as being possible nuclear funders um, of these kind of plants, and that's South Korea, China, and Russia. And even within those, as we were saying, there are question marks over um, yeah, them entering certain markets. I, I would find it very surprising that, uh, that anyone in governments in the UK or certainly the US would be very comfortable with a Russian uh, company or even a government-backed uh, entity building a nuclear power plant in their country, given that they are massively concerned even about about the influence of, of Russia in elections. And actually, there, were, there was even suggested this week that Russia is trying to influence the outcome of the French election, it, which is mad. Which, which is mad. And it's obviously, that's the problem when you start dealing about these massive issues that you can kind of start to lose the thread. But yeah, I think the, the political risk and the concerns there is something that investors or our readers that are kind of getting exposure to some of these industries have to bear in bear in mind. Where is the money going to come from and what is the political risk around some of that money? Yeah, and I mean, the other thing I mentioned in my editorial is, is the local risk. So whilst the nuclear power plants proposed for 10 miles from my house has yet to, to really garner any significant opposition, although there is opposition, there are groups uh, locally who are very concerned about... Um, what what is going to be built and, and 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 the viability of it and the security and safety of it? Um, actually, that's not the thing that that creates most opprobrium where I live. It's it's the plans for new housing, and you know, and 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 you know, we saw the the white paper last week. You know, th- there is a demand for much more housing as well as you know, energy uh, infrastructure, transport infrastructure, and even that faces massive opposition at a local level. 
So you strike a note of caution for um, investors thinking that there's going to be um, projects in shortly in the pipeline. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the point of my editorial because I, I do like to you know frame it in a uh, in the context of, of what investors may be looking at. And you may have heard these big narratives about nuclear renaissance or that you know the, the, the great future of the housing market, given how much demand. There is, and, and such a shortage of supply. And I just think we have to be very careful where, where there is politics involved at, at, at the top, you know, the highest level of government and also at the local level of government that can stand in the way of these things. This isn't China. You can't just build things because you want them or even need them. Except for Trump's wall, which is definitely going to happen. Apparently so. But that's OK, because Mexico is so. going to pay for it, so that's fine. Apparently so. So actually, Alex, one of the mines that you mentioned in your feature is Salamanca, which is a uranium miner. Yeah. So, so the uranium mining question is, is Berkeley Energy, but the project is, is Salamanca in Spain. One, I think one of the big uh, reasons for investing, or the, you know, one of the big uh, cases for the, the, the stock is that it's uh, a reliable supply of uranium for a European, uh, buy, you know, European buyers who are a bit cautious about sourcing their uranium from from Kazakhstan and, and Central Asia. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, that, that sort of security in the supply chain which goes with it in, in the case of this particular project, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a one-off in, in terms of the, the mines we've looked at in this, this issue, has a very, very uh, important strategic polit- political element to it as well. So in- Indeed. I mean, you know, actually one of the, one of the things I did when I, when I wrote this editorial was to look at actually the amount of new plants new nuclear plants that that had been built in recent years in both the UK and in France which is obviously Europe's you know leading nuclear power certainly in terms of the the installed base of power Germany is retrenching from this mm. we know um certainly you know Fukushima gave it very very much cold feet uh, in this respect China I mean you look at China I mean the, 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 you know what's been built recently and what's planned is is absolutely enormous um, so, so yeah, I mean, it is, it is a, it's a fascinating market, but not an easy one to really get to grips with as a UK mm. investor. I mean, actually, you know, one thing that ha- has been mentioned by us previously, uh, but also I notice in, in, in some other media this week, is this idea of small modular nuclear reactors. And there is a company uh, in the news this week that, that is involved in this project, and that's Rolls-Royce. Yeah, exactly right. And that's something that um, Mark Robinson, our deputy company's editor, who covers Rolls-Royce, um, it's really having keen eye to at the moment. Um, when that can, obviously for a big company like Rolls-Royce, that's a very small part of what they do at the well, moment. Well, it's virtually non-existent yeah. at the moment. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's a really potentially interesting um, avenue of future growth. I, I think I think it's fascinating because, I mean, just if, if you haven't heard the story around small modular nuclear reactors they're essentially much much um smaller as, as the, yeah, the name would suggest than the kind of big sort of 18 billion pound plants we're talking about in terms of hinkley point or bradwell or whatever it might be the idea is that they can produce be produced in a factory uh they can be rolled out yeah on a city by city basis and they can be exported um, and actually, I noticed in the FT today, uh, which I sent across the robber, there's a company called Sheffield Forge Masters, which is you know, a, a kind of remnant of the UK steel industry, which is involved in, in making uh, the, the steel components of, of nuclear reactors who are involved in this project as well. I think it's very interesting. I suspect it's going to gather momentum. Mm. But for Rolls-Royce, that's not the pressing concern <laughs> this week, is it? Let's jump to the results section, because Rolls-Royce reported one of it, certainly its largest uh, corporate loss ever this week and, and one of the largest ever seen in the UK. Yeah, exactly right. And um, a, another company where some uh, of the problems that it's had have been previously flagged. There wasn't huge um, 
surprises on results day, but they are big problems. So it took a £4.4 billion write down on the value of its financial hedges. Um, so that's sizable. It also had that um, recent settlement relating to bribery and corruption charges. It had the deferred prosecution agreement mm-hmm. with uh, the UK, US and Brazilian authorities. So that's not good news either. Um if you dig a little bit deeper into the um, results, you can find reasons to be uh, cheerful or negative. One of the reasons to be a bit more negative, um, and the share price, I think, did end up further down on the day, even after all the news was previously flagged. And um, the civil aerospace segment um, was a cause of consternation, to use Mark's um, term. And particularly, it's the aftermarket. So Rolls-Royce makes a lot of its profits from the kind of aftermarket as opposed to the original sales um, of the engines. Um, and in kind of older, large engine fleets, um, aftermarket sales kind of fell a bit. So that's the kind of thing that Rolls-Royce investors really don't want to read about. Um, So, yeah, it's a company that is struggling uh, in many respects, but then there are reasons to be uh, cheerful about its prospects, um, and particularly given, like, the sales of the Airbus A350, um, which was stronger in the second half. So, you know, some of that kind of civil aviation... um, short-term uh you know pipeline business looks looks good but yeah there are concerns about the aftermarket then there's the concerns about whether they're able to run their business without incurring further huge um legal settlements Mm. no i mean it's it's uh it's a fascinating company i mean it's been through the wars i think we've spoken about this regularly on this podcast it has a new chief exec i one would suggest there is a certain amount of kitchen sinking going on with what's going on at the moment that that warren east uh formerly of arm is doing his best to get this company into a position where they can, can essentially start again. Um, not in terms of starting again, it was a hundred odd year old company, but certainly starting again in, in terms of investor sentiments. Yeah, exactly right. And it might be that it has a lot better rest of 2017. The order intake uh, was higher year on year. Um, I mean, the backlog, you have to then take out of that the kind of currency benefit they've had on the dollar sales. But yeah, even after that, uh, constant currencies and um, things were kind of ticking up there so actually yeah it could be the kind of kitchen sinking things like the the one-offs like the legal charge that won't be repeated and actually it's going to be a lot stronger in future with a decent ceo at the head yeah i mean it's, it's funny actually because you, you would have expected rolls royce to be you know given that a lot of its sales are are overseas to be a big dollar earner and you know dollar earners are the kind of companies that you know, in, in in the wake of the Brexit vote and the weakness of sterling, we've been encouraged to look at. Um, I, I've actually said in my, my editorial, you have to be kind of a bit cautious about this approach. Just simply buying dollar earners is, uh, it, I would suggest, the recipe for disaster because A, the dollar may not remain weak, but B, you know, managing dollar fluctuations can be difficult and actually I think that's what we've seen here. Yeah, you, if you take that approach, check if they've got a big currency hedging programme. Big programs. currency hedging <laughs> against the strong dollar, then yeah, uh, then, yeah you're... Uh you're going to be in trouble. Uh, which which uh, many people would have said that's the right way to run the business. You know, you have this huge exposure um, and then you should manage it. But obviously, currency hedges, yeah, it's a tricky game to play, as you say, and it can lead to big losses. One of the first ever features I wrote for the Investors Chronicle was about uh, companies with dollar exposure. And it was when the dollar was, was closer to $2 a pound than, 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 than parity, you know, as it is now. Um, and actually, there were a lot of people at the time who were suggesting that where you have uh, translational exposure rather than transaction exposure, don't hedge. Yeah. Because currencies, you know, sometimes they're strong, sometimes they're weak relatively. And 
you know, it will even itself out in the end and investors should take a long view. Not to mention the fees you pay on actually setting up those operations. Absolutely. I mean, look at, look at local authority and interest rate swaps, how they got into huge problems in a rising interest rate environment. They thought, oh, this is definitely the way to do it. And then they got killed by having these um, really large kind of swap operations in play. Yeah, it definitely can be risky. Well, it essentially, it essentially financialises, you know, your, your P&L when, when, you know, when you're not a financial company. And mm-hmm. I, th- I just think there's too much risk in doing that. You know, if you're a bank, fine, that's your job. If you're an engineer, maybe not. Exactly. Um, okay, we've had uh, some new listings on the market. Uh, we've had one new listing on the market this week, which began trading today. We've got a couple more uh, on the way, which you write about this week. Let's start with the one that's actually here. Yes, Zaffinity, a company from my old beat in the pensions world. Um, it basically does things that sound terribly boring, uh, but are important. It's because is... they are terribly boring. <laughs> well, you know, it depends <laughs> who you ask then, um, and if there's any actuaries listening. Uh, but it's a uh, pensions administration and, and consultancy um, provider, um, at, particularly for defined benefit pension schemes, so the older style of pension schemes where there's a fund to administrate, there's pensioners. Um, and there's a huge amount of rules and regulations to be able to, to manage um, and how they relate to benefits. I think that's, um, you know, about um, 80% of their revenue. So it's, it's a runoff type business then. It's kind of managing down a book, I would guess. Yeah. There aren't too many defined benefit schemes still in operation today in terms of taking new money in. Exactly right. But people are living longer. And as the chief executive makes a point um Paul Cuff in this um, news story that the runoff of these schemes will take 40 to 50 years um, because they have pension promises made to people even in their 30s and 40s and that's probably being slightly conservative um, well actuaries have been known to understate that in the past so um, yeah basically there's a big part of that business that's going to be chunky for a while yet uh, and then also obviously they have the um, business relating to defined contribution pensions and also yeah and their master trust product which is a type of pension scheme that you sell to employers to help them um, help them uh, manage this new auto enrollment um, regulation that's come in so yeah it, it's it's in, it's done well today in terms of its listing on the market is one of those businesses where they do operate in a fairly crowded market, uh, but they've got a pretty decent track record. Um, these schemes are going to be around for a while and need businesses and, and need business, but you wouldn't expect them to be huge growth stock. They did discuss acquisitions a little bit. Maybe that's how they'll try and grow on the public market. Yeah, I was going to say. I noticed our uh, our kind of sub uh, head says that this is this is uh, a uh, company that is claims to offer income and growth potential. The growth bit, I was kind of questioning. Income, I get. Yeah, I, I think um, maybe it didn't make into the final print piece um, for word reasons, but I think there might be the potential for doing um, kind of acquisitions in future. But if you actually look at the amount of leverage on the business, and one of the reasons for the IPO, as we see many times, is to reduce the debt, mm. uh, I wouldn't say there's a huge amount of hedge room in this business to be able to go out and buy other businesses. So, but it's, an in, so it's an income play, really? I, I would say it's more of an income play. It's harder to make a growth argument um, unless, yeah, they do start picking up books, old defined benefit books as the uh, market consolidates. But it's kind of, kind of similar model then to Chisnara, which, uh, which is kind of bought schemes in runoff? Yeah, yeah, except that they are administrating live schemes, so it's more of a kind of administ- yeah, I'd say it's similar but they are more of a consultancy in that okay. way. It's okay. two businesses so they can win and lose contracts whereas um, Chesnara will be- buy 
closed books of business. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I suppose they're closed in a similar way, but that, that's going to be stickier business. Just, just now has been a great investment, certainly for income seekers in the recent years. So exactly, so right. maybe worth a look. for anyone who's done well out of Chesnara, maybe worth a look. Yeah, exactly right. It might not garner the same kind of headlines, but then as we've written about in the past, sometimes they can be the good companies to look at. Okay, um, and these companies that I'm about to talk about haven't listed yet, but but they are also income plays because they are REITs. Um, REITs being real estate investment trusts who are obliged by, by virtue of being real estate investment trusts to pay out a certain proportion of their earnings as income. Um, and these, these look quite interesting. One in particular I, I, I like the look of. Yeah, REITs. You can guess which one. I think I can guess which one. Uh, REITs, uh, we picked up on uh, this subject a little bit in the FTSE 350. The REITs section continues to expand from new listings, but also property companies that have decided to switch over to a to REIT status and um, to get that tax benefit that you talked about um, because they exempt from paying corporation tax if they pay out um, particular ama- um, a certain amount of their um, profits as dividends each year. So it's attractive to some companies for that reason um, because there's a lot of investor demand for these stocks at present. Um, you can see why other companies are coming to the market. Yes, there were the concerns around how Brexit would impact on particularly those REITs that are exposed to the London um, financial sector and generally the jobs market in London. Um, but uh, there are other areas of safety and one of the ones which I think you're talking about, which is impact healthcare Absolutely. REIT. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So it's one of the themes actually that we've picked up on in the t- in the title. Jonas Crossland, who covers the sector, has, has you know um, covered some of these REITs that are in areas where the demand for the properties is actually underpinned by you know the need to provide healthcare. You know. Yeah. So we've looked at things like. Um Companies that provide uh, primary care properties. In fact, one of them is called Primary Health Properties, if I'm right, right remembering. Yeah. Which provides G- basically GP surgeries. We like student property. We like some of the big box property companies like Tritex Big Box REITs, which are kind of exposed to the uh, internet shopping uh, angle. But healthcare is a really interesting one for a number of reasons. Yeah, exactly right. And we know that there's, just from reading any newspaper on any given day, that there's a big problem with, in terms of having enough beds in, um, in care um, homes. And yeah, the need um, to provide those properties and the kind of statutory underpinning for that um, income. Um, and generally, the nature of the rents means that they're linked to inflation as well. So that provides certain amount of security for the dividends then paid by the by the REIT so those are areas where as if we we're talking about that same reader before that's interested in an in income stock there is a level of security here that you probably can't get in other places and then like you say there's also like the big box REITs that play into a certain trend within retail that seems to be fairly firmly established at the moment yeah and uh, the second REIT that we talk about in the piece is LXI REITs which is which is more sort of straight commercial yeah, exactly right. Longer term commercial property, but that's you know that's the traditional uh, kind of bread and butter. You know, long term, um, fairly reliable um, income. But lots of lots of safeguards built in there to make sure that income stream is protected uh, in the years ahead. Yeah, rent reviews to be linked to inflation, and they kind of give targeted net shareholder returns. Although sometimes you have to take those with a pinch of salt. Um, but yeah, the, again, it's a focus on secure income. And we tip a, a REIT in the uh, the tip section as well this week, um, albeit a, a pretty more um, standard flavour of REIT, uh, to, 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 uh, to put it one way. Um, and that's all the clues we're going to give you. That's, that's all the clues that we're going to give you. You'd have to go and pick the magazine up to find that out. But no, I mean, it is an interesting sector. 
that was hit hard uh, by the referendum. And actually, that's created some great opportunities, we would argue. Yeah, and especially the big ones were hit by it. So perhaps some of the smaller ones that are, as we say, exposed to slightly different sectors. And they were good opportunities. Okay. Um, right. What else have we got in the news section? Um, we, we talk about our podcast here that we've done. Uh, Alex, that you put together on uh, the, the simple question, is the stock market overvalued? We don't need to go into that now because there is another podcast where mm. we discuss that in detail. Well, we, but we have the answer, but you have to find the other podcast to, uh, to, to find the answer. Yeah. Is there an answer? Uh, a conclusive, uh, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a million dollar question. I can't believe there is actually an answer to it, but there you go. And also you've written the lead news story this week on, uh, on Copper, Dr Copper, which is, which is flying. It's flying, and for a very simple reason that the two largest mines in the world, Escondida in Chile and uh, Grasberg in Indonesia, are now offline. So, I mean, it doesn't take, uh, it doesn't take much of a mathematical leap to work out that if you take off, you know, 6-7% of the world's copper market, then very quickly we can slide into a, a deficit. So the companies which are, are affected here, um, you know, for UK investors, particularly a BHP, which operates Escondida in in Chile, they're as we're speaking now, uh, stepping into some sort of government government mediated talks with the with the unions um, to try and resolve this this strike, which has been going on for about a week now. So we're unsure whether or not that's going to you know, you know, lead to anything. Uh, it sounds like both sides has been you know a bit of a standoff, and that there were some break ins to the mine over the weekend. Uh, currently, I mean that's that's a mine which which generates 1.2 million tons of, of copper concentrate a year, and the longer this goes on, you can only expect that the price is going to go up because that's about five percent of, of global supply. That's absolutely enormous. Yeah, I mean we actually we published the copper price, the uh, LME London Metals Exchange three month copper in our commodities box yep. on the seven days um, market stats page. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's pretty much trading close to year highs. Yeah, so um, it's it's up to a near two-year high. Um, obviously, copper has been quite oversupplied in the last uh, couple of years. There has also been weakening Chinese demand, which, I mean, this is a very, very old familiar story, uh, you know, changed the record, but that has been sort of dominating the, the you know, the copper low prices for a couple of years now. But it's it looks to be springing back into a deficit this year. So even ahead of this, we were quite we were quite bullish about copper, and we've uh, tipped a, a few copper only plays. I mean, obviously, if you're if you're buying into a copper only stock, I mean, the copper price is the dominant is the dominant theme to to your your, inv- your investment, and we can talk a little, bit, a little bit about this when we talk about the feature. Absolutely, but you know, for B- the likes of BHP or Rio, who uh, you know have a thirty percent stake in the uh, in the Grasberg mine, a little bit a little bit. Uh, more hedged to to you know the fluctuations in any individual com- commodity, uh, which is obviously a very very good thing because if if Escondida was the only mine uh, that BHP owned, uh, you know who knows where their their share price would be at the moment because that's a huge huge amount of earnings which has come off the table. Yeah, so, so I mean this sounds to me like uh, it's a supply rather than a demand story because I can't imagine that Chinese demand has suddenly accelerated. It's well, it it's. Chinese, the Chinese demand story is entirely reliant, it seems, on uh, the housing market in China, or it's, which is a, a consumer of about, uh, you know, some estimates that's sort of up to half of all global copper and, you know, even more when it comes to iron ore. That has rallied further than people were expecting in the last year. But it's, you know, there's some signs that it's getting a bit overheated. And that's, that's hence that, yeah, exactly right. It's not, it's not a demand story at the moment. We're not expecting demand to surge. But you, you see just how tight some of these metals markets can be when, you know, you just have two mines 
uh, going offline for the price to, to shoot up. Interesting. So that would suggest to me that individual mines, which barely get looked at in, in, you know, in terms of uh, the way we analyse stock markets, are really, really important. They are, yeah. And, uh, and so the feature is really, really timely because what you've actually done is rather than looking at the listed companies themselves, you're actually looking at the mines. Mm. So we've kind of taken it, we've reversed what we usually do. Yeah, we have. I mean, for followers of AIM, this, this might not be that unique uh, an approach because when you're investing in some of the companies we, we've picked out here, you are really, you're really backing one project. So we mentioned Salamanca earlier, the Berkeley Energy uh, Uranium Project. Berkeley, if you're investing in Berkeley Energy, it's, it's all about Salamanca. Ditto projects like uh, Teresa, which is a very, it's been a very, very successful main market listing, which came on last year, which is a South African platinum and chrome miner. You also mentioned uh, Atalaya mining, and Atalaya in, in, mining the, uh, yeah. in, the, in the news story, yeah, which, so, is, which is copper, yeah, and we, pure play, yeah, absolutely. So, so that's a, that was a, a revitalised, very old copper mine, uh, copper mine, which is on a shoestring, been been brought back to life. High costs, but um, you know at these prices of copper, it's, it's quite leveraged, and the shares doing shares doing quite well. So, uh, so AIM investors will be familiar with this approach to look at one one mine specifically. Obviously, that has real real drawbacks. You know, if if uranium prices fail to get off the ground, uh, that's really really bad news for uh, Berkeley uh, Energy long term. We don't think that's going to be the case because they've already got off taking agree- agreements in place, well ahead of current spot prices. Ditto serious minerals, which are, I'm, I'm to be honest warming to this story. You know, always is a contentious it's, one. Alex. It's always a contentious one, but um, <laughs> but now they've got you know they've they've got stage one funding in place. The shares have come right down after the the heat which we saw last year, but you, you know they've got offtake agreements in place, and this was a previously a concern of the the North Yorkshire uh, potash mine that they just weren't going to get buyers for the polyhalite. But you know the the size of some of the offtake agreements they're now they're now getting um, would sort of underline that there is a market for what they're digging out of the ground. Explain to me, Alex. Mm. You talk about offtake gr- agreements. You yes. talk about buyers. And you made me change something in the feature. Yeah. To distinguish between a buyer and an offtake agreement. So, I think for the purpose for the purposes of that change, it was a clarification between buyers in the market, as in you or I would go and buy the shares, right? Um, and offtake agreements, uh, where these might be slightly uh, longer dated contractual arrangements between a miner and a buyer. Are they firm? They're firm purchase agreements. Are they? Yes. Well, I mean, and there's lots of different contracts that we can spin this. So in right. the gas markets, you have take or pay agreements where, uh, you know, if you, if you decide not to buy, you're still going to have to cough up some of your your commitment. Uh, you know, some of some of the purchase price. Uh, and it's different every you know every market. But for example, uranium. You know, if you're if you're an EDF, you really really want a, a stable and long term supply for your your reactors. So you buy you buy ten years in advance. So that you know th- these are sort of offtake agreements uh, I was referring to. Right. Okay. Sorry for the uh, the tangent. There. Forgiven. Let's John. come back to the feature. Yeah. Where do we go? What's what? I mean, are there big themes that that you're pulling out of this? So having looked at these twenty five mines that we look at, which cover the the whole gamut of uh, of commodity yeah. complexes out there, what what have what have you what do you conclude as a kind of big you know take out from offtake from doing this uh, from from this exercise? Um, I mean, co- costs really are everything. I mean, you when you're investing in in, in companies in the mining sector. 
the the potential returns you're going to get is is obviously a play on how profitable it is to extract a commodity, you know, anything from the ground at any one point in the cycle. So you have with with for example, I'll pick out um, a Rio Tinto's Pilbara iron ore mines. These are the just you know some of the lowest cost iron ore production in the world. They're going to be they're going to be making money almost regardless of of where the price is. Um, but in a, in a, in a sense, you're not quite as leveraged to uh, uh, price fluctuations as a higher iron ore cost miner. So that's something I think investors have to uh, pay particular attention to because the the margin growth isn't necessarily as big if iron ore shoots up from seventy to eighty dollars and you're producing at thirty dollars as it is if you're producing at sixty dollars and it goes from seventy to eighty dollars. Similarly. What have picked out uh, a number of mines in the in this list, where they have uh, byproducts or secondary uh, revenue streams. For example, Teresa was was uh, uh, a company I mentioned a little bit earlier. They they sell platinum. Platinum mar- market is still a bit depressed at the moment, but they also have a byproduct of chrome, and they make specialty chrome concentrate, which is in a market which is completely con- you know con- uh, constrained at the moment and there's huge there's a huge deficit the price of which has nearly tripled in the last year so it almost acts as a sort of hedge for the mine so they're not totally reliant on wherever the platinum market is going to be so these are some things you know it's important to I, I think to consider when you're looking at any particular project okay i mean you mentioned iron ore mm. there's not many iron ore miners here and I guess that is because, as you say, it's all about cost, and the only really attractive miners are the ones that don't cost much. Because, because I think you mentioned in the feature, the expectation is that the iron ore price is not sustainable where it is today. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 rocketed to now. Uh, you know, even in the last week, it's jumped again. Um, but I mean, the projections coming out from you know the Australian Mining min- uh, Ministry and the companies themselves are that it's going to fall. So for that reason. Uh, I, I didn't include too many iron ore miners here, so I've tried to keep I tried to keep it relatively topical as well for companies wh- whose prospects, you know, in the near term are also looking, you know, slightly more favourable. I, I guess smaller smaller iron ore producers just simply can't compete in in, in cost terms as well, given uh, what you've just said. Yeah, I mean, there was a trend. I mean, not not that long ago for you know uh, small aim companies to have found that you know this has got a very large chunk of iron and 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 people went mad for it but but actually getting it out of the ground at a, at a cost effective price doesn't seem to be within their means yeah and if you look at you know you look at Rio Tinto's Pilbara mines they they coordinate a number of mines from one center they have you know they've made huge investments in mechanization and automation so they've taken you know big chunks of the labor uh, cost out of their you know out of their models uh, that's that's not something that smaller iron ore miners can really compete with and I mean that's demonstrated by it's something something north of seventy percent of the iron ore market is controlled by about three companies. Um, so it's not it's not a commodity you know where upstart new entrants can really make much of a dent. I don't think. Yeah, indeed. Uh, precious metals get a good look in here. Yeah, I mean they get a very they're very well represented on on AIM and uh, even on you know even in the FTSE one hundred you know there's there's quite a big weighting to to gold and silver miners. Uh, again, here I mean. Another thing to look at here are grades, which uh, sometimes get a little bit overlooked, but it can be a useful thing for miners to rely on uh, when prices may be slightly lower, that they can move their mining plan to parts of the ore body where they're able to make a lot a lot more money at, at lower processing costs. Yep. So, so that's, that's, an, that's an important thing to consider as well. 
Uh, one company is singled out is Mariana Resources. I mean, it's very a very early stage gold miner. With, with a, they're not even a gold miner yet, but they have this asset in Turkey called the Hot Marden uh, project. They're a junior partner in that, but the grades they've sort of stumbled across there, you know, average of eleven grams a ton. That's just well above everything else you can you can find on the market. So it's very interesting to see what's going to happen there. Presumably, when they publish their pre-feasibility study, um, and we're expecting we're expecting things on that later in the year, they're going to be able to show a very, very low cost for instract- extraction because the grades are consequently so high. Okay, I mean, and there's lots of um, lots of mines that you mentioned that are looking perhaps in sort of more uh, off the beaten track uh, end of the commodity spectrum. So you know things like titanium and nickel. Which don't necessarily they're not they're not, the, they're not the, they don't grab the headlines, but but interesting and, and potentially profitable for a lot of companies. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's, Molly Bdenham, it's manganese. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's always it's always a balance, isn't it? And um, and you know, particularly in in uh, less traded commodities, the spot price can be a bit more bit more erratic. So they don't have derivatives contracts, you know, to the same degree that that uh, you know some of the base metals do. Uh, but you know, these can be these can be very very uh, profitable metals if there is a shortage of supply. So, I mean, we spoke about chrome earlier. That's that's one one example. It's a, a far smaller market, but when when the market contracts or supply contracts, it can be uh, very very profitable. Okay, let's let's come full circle with this podcast. We started with energy, nuclear. We've spoke spoken about uranium. What we haven't spoken about is lithium. Mm. And lithium is uh, is on your list, Bacanora. Yes, we have talked about Bacchanora and lithium uh, a number of times before. Let's also. talk about it again. Let's talk about it again. It's, it's, re- it's really interesting because, you yeah. know, when I, when I look at the, the future of energy, I just can't help but think batteries yeah. are going to play a huge role in it. <laughs> and, and lithium is, is really important in the, in the kind of the modern battery. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, you know, the sources of lithium or lithium carbonate, that which, will be, which are used in, in, in batteries, are quite confined to parts of... Um, Certain countries in South America, the 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 good thing about Bacanora minerals is that it is a it is a play a sort of pure play on on lithium carbonate, which you can't really you can't really find with many other. I I, I think with one or two exceptions, you can't find it at all on the London Stock Exchange. But I, I mean, Bacanora, considering the hype which is attached to lithium and the electric car uh, revolution that we're all waiting for. It's, it's sort of surprising to see, in some ways, that the share price has remained as uh, as flat as it has for the last you know year or so. So, um, you know, still a big discount to their their net asset value. Or, or, you know, that the, their brokers have uh, the brokers numbers have uh, put up, and from 2019, it's going to be producing about seventeen and a half thousand tons of of battery grade lithium carbonate, uh, and that's meant to double two years after. So, there's huge, huge uh, potential for this this mine. Um, you know, perhaps there's some doubts about the speed and force at which uh, lithium is going to be going to be taken up. But I think we we're pretty confident that what you know one day is going to be a very very big thing. It's just it's just timing, really. Yeah, but I, I, you know, I think I think perhaps investors today are, are somewhat more circumspect about how they go about investing in in the resources sector. Mm. It has been difficult. In it's the been last it's few been years. largely horrible. Largely I, I, I'd horrible. Go, I'd go as far as saying. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, there are signs that, that it's on the turn. Mm. But, you know, I think, I think actually if investors are taking a more considered view of the sector, then A, this feature is a great place to start, and B, that's very sensible. Yeah, I mean, and it, was the be- it was the best place to invest your money last year if you were looking at equities markets. I mean, commodities just... 
soared really, uh, and that was that was from a, a, you know an absolute nadir in January and January and February where people thought some of the big monies were going to go to the walls. So, um, so it do, it does pay to be invested, but you know as we've said many times before, it, you know, and we're comparing it to we're talking about REITs earlier, which is the opposite end, you know, the the truly boring, unvolatile end sometimes of of invest in investments that that natural resources. You know, they can be very, very, very volatile and, uh, you know, proceed with caution. But if you ignore them altogether, then as we saw last year, you lost out massively. Mm. Absolutely. Proceed with caution, but before you proceed anywhere, read this feature. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Alex. It really is a truly enlightening feature. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Plenty more uh, in the magazine, as usual. Results starting to ramp up a little bit. Results this week from Reckitt and Henderson. We've got some stuff from Fund Management. Obviously, Rolls-Royce, which you've already mentioned. GSK, which we haven't talked about. And Smith & Nephew, uh, which is an, another provider in the healthcare sector. But yeah, it's going to start getting busy from now on, isn't it, Ian? Yeah, I think probably about twice as many results next week. If Lovely. More. And then even more Can't the week wait. after. Can't wait. Lots in the personal finance fund section, uh, which they will talk about on their podcast tomorrow. Uh, obviously, the usual tips and comments and such the like. it, And uh, even more in the news section we've, we've had time to discuss today. Uh, John Rosier, our private investor diarist, is back uh, with his uh, his monthly column. And uh, yeah, things are getting a little bit little bit better there. Always worth keeping up to date with a real-life portfolio and how that's going um, and, and how he goes about managing that and the thought process behind it. And yeah, wow, there we go. Another exciting week. We haven't mentioned Cobham, which uh, has had a huge profit warning today in the aerospace sector. We won't. Another one. Let's save that for next week. But uh, yeah, it's, I, I suspect we're things are about to get interesting. Mm. So stay tuned. Um, but in the meantime, pick up this week's magazine, The World's Best Minds, How to Craft a Perfect Mining Share Portfolio, £4.90 in all good news agents, or get online and subscribe. Thank you very much. See you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 